The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Carnival of Fire, Episode 2. It was that first night in Texas that I performed with the Xerxes and Xander Circus. And despite all my grievances, I do confess it was among the most magical nights of my life. I wandered toward the big top, which had risen like a palace of striped cloth, and its entrance was washed in light. I pressed my bowler hat around my greasy hair and affixed fingerless gloves to my hands. I had never worked in the circus before, and I swelled with anticipation. The air inside the big top was a panoply of smells, the musty odor of damp hay, the dusty scent of dry wood, the caramel sweetness of candy apples, which danced before my nostrils in warm succession. I knew my game, and I knew it well. I had traveled the length and breadth of Louisiana, and some other parts as well, and I had wandered the grassy paths of county fairs, the booths and kiosks of carnivals, and the alleys and street corners of the Cartier Francais. I had performed shell games in town squares. I had made cards disappear in front of curious children, and I had charmed their mothers by fetching their own wedding rings from behind their ears. With each improvised stage, I earned enough coins for a bed and brandy, for these amenities were all that I'd required. I had long been satisfied with the hustle of the cobbled streets, the lazy pace of the midway, the sweat-soaked folly of New Orleans at dusk. My thoughtless pleasure felt boundless, and it was only age, the sprouting gray stubble, the pouches underneath my eyes that tarnished my mind with boredom. I'd grown sick with the tedium of my trade, and I pined for something new. In one night, the circus cured all that. I had seen circuses before, in the hazy days of my youth, but never had I seen one such as this. The moment I entered the tent, the limelight illuminated that sloped fabric ceiling with the ferocity of the sun. Before a visiting family could even sit down in the bleachers, they were dizzy with wonder. Jugglers throwing hatchets into the air and catching them with indifference. A ventriloquist singing a duet alongside his wooden puppet and a mime that danced in synchronicity with a line of anarchic penguins. All this and more took place in the hours before the show, in the sawdust, among the wooden planks, and in the trench around the stage. A piano player was dragged into the middle of the ring so the cakewalks and honky-tonk tunes could serenade each visitor like the tinkling of a lively ghost. I meandered among them, drawing cards out of the air, pulling colored strings from my mouth, balancing a crystal ball on my fingertips and making it vanish into a puff of powder. I watched couples eating popcorn by the boxful. 
I watch children lick strapped candy and blow pinwheels in the dusty air. They put pennies in my hat, which I doffed with gratitude. But please understand, my act was a paltry thing, an apéritif, a quaint and fleeting novelty compared to the circus itself. For when the lights dimmed in the audience, and old Cletus strode into the ring, his ponce nay in one hand and a bullwhip in the other, the crowd went mad with joy. Old Cletus's grandiose smile and outstretched arms drove everyone to their feet, screaming and clapping, whistling and pounding their boots. Old Cletus was a warlock of a man who could enchant a thousand eyes and ears from the first crack of his whip. They were helpless before his burning gaze, his stentorian voice, the physicality of his presence. Welcome, welcome ladies and gentlemen. You are all truly blessed this evening. Not since the Colosseum, not since the pyramids, not since the crucifixion has humanity witnessed a spectacle of such scope and splendor. For ours is no ordinary circus. It is the culmination of human talent, drawn from the four corners of the world, from the islands of the seven seas, from the blackest jungles and the highest mountaintops, from the Hottentot tribes of Syrian savannas to the golden courts of Siam. Behold! Sirs and madams, children of all ages, the pinnacle of human achievement, the glory of our age and of all ages past, the Xerxes and Xander Circus! No sooner had he spoken these words than the ring was flooded with performers, a ceaseless flow of action. Show horses rode in circles and figure eights, their plumes bobbing over their heads. An army of clowns scurried about, fell over themselves, dropped mallets on each other's heads, squirted water from lapels, balanced on the tops of freestanding ladders, and finished their act by winding themselves into a web of hemp rope until the entire clump of comedians was dragged away with a long hook. Then the strong man, in his leopard-skin tunic, lifted a barbell into the air, and just when you thought his strength was sufficiently Herculean, two other strong men flipped onto his shoulders and sat down on each weight. And these were only the opening acts. Acrobats flew from trapezes, bounced on trampolines, threw burning torches in the air, formed human pyramids, and somersaulted in perfect formation. One man placed a wine flute on his nose, then added plates and glasses until he'd created a wavering tower of crystal. A woman entered the ring with a boa constrictor wrapped around her body, which coiled around her sequined suit and flicked its tongue at the audience. Then a ring descended from the ceiling, and she grasped it with one hand, allowing herself to be lifted high above the crowd, still enwrapped in the great serpent. Even without the finale, 
the audience might have gone home exhausted, but it was this ultimate act that burned the evening into their memories so that not one patron could ever forget the name Xerxes and Xander. First came the explosions. Firecrackers burst along the tent's rigging, startling the hundreds of people in the house. Then wheels of light sparkled on the perimeter. And just as the band began to play as raucously as their instruments would allow them, Cassius appeared. He was a muscular man with a shaven scalp, except for a bejeweled lock that stretched from the back of his head. He covered his chest in a kind of breastplate, which reminded me of the ancient gladiators I once read about in school. He wore fur-covered boots cut from yak pelts, and he sauntered about the ring with a bullwhip in his hand. Even today, I shudder to think of him, his dead eyes caked in black makeup, the studded cuffs that adorned his wrists. Even his arms were a muddle of veins, as if his tough skin were crawling with earthworms. Before I knew a thing about him, Cassius seemed the beastliest man I ever saw, and had I followed my instincts, I would have high-tailed it the moment I saw him. But I didn't. I stayed, and I was mesmerized by what I saw, as any man would be, no matter his age or experience. What Cassius called forth from the shadows was a white Siberian tiger, or so they claimed it was, a great cat as large as a pony, covered in fur as white and black as a zebra's. The creature strode regally into the light, and the audience gasped with awe and terror, for the creature was not caged. I have heard tell of every kind of circus. I've seen dancing elephants and comic chimpanzees. I've heard the gamut of tales, and I respect their many gimmicks and tricks, for I am also a man of the carnival trade, and I know the sweat and tears required for the meagerest recital. Yet never once in circus lore have I heard of something like this. The tiger roamed free, as unfettered in that ring as among snow-capped peaks. Cassius snapped his whip, and the creature snarled. It seemed that, at any moment, the tiger might leap into the throngs and rip its claws into human flesh, then consume panicked men to his stomach's content. Why not? What prevented the carnivorous cat from devouring what it desired? Yet with a second snap, the tiger fell sideways, as docile as a kitten. It rolled over on its back, then seemed to bow toward its master. It reared up on hind legs, flopping its long tail against the dirt. When the great cat leapt onto a round platform, Cassius retrieved a bamboo hoop. He touched it with a burning torch, and the hoop ignited into a ring of fire. The tiger leapt through the flames, as unaffected as a debutante steps through wildflowers. With each movement, the tiger's muscles flexed visibly beneath its striped white fur. 
Cassius shouted commands, rotated the fiery hoop, and saluted the audience, inciting wild applause. At last, Cassius tossed the hoop into a waiting basin of water, and the tiger rose to its full height and laid a paw on its master's bare shoulder. In that moment, man and beast were one. I was reading an old copy of Collier's that I had retrieved from the dustbin, minding my own business, when I heard the commotion. It was an overcast morning, a week after that first performance, and the Connies had mostly retreated to their quarters. A shout pierced the quiet, and I looked up to see the strong man. Damn you, you little rat! Why have you kept me waiting? Where did you get off to? I'll tan your hide, you worthless scamp! The strong man sat some distance away, dressed in a robe and perched atop a steel drum. His face was purple with rage, and he bellowed from deep inside his throat so that his neck puffed out like a cobra's. Across from him stood a small boy. On closer inspection, I saw he was a teenager, but he looked scrawny and frail. He wore a ratty gray shirt and corduroys hitched up with a single suspender. Over his shoulders, he lugged a heavy wooden yoke from which two pails of water dangled. The strong man slid down from his drum and grabbed one of the pails from the yoke. The movement was so swift that the boy lost his balance and fell sideways, spilling water from the second pail. That's right, spat the strong man, holding the pail aloft. Grovel, you little freeloader. As the boy scrambled on his knees, the strong man pressed the metal lip to his mouth and drank greedily allowing water to seep down his cheeks and chest. No sooner had he tasted the water than he recoiled, spitting the liquid out, and roared with rage. He hurled the pail at the boy, and I could hear it thump against his hip, knocking him onto his back. This water tastes like piss, screamed the strong man. I wouldn't feed this to a hog. You fetch me some fresh water, boy, or I'll tear you in half, you hear? My legs quivered with the desire to step forward and intervene. What boy was ever born that deserved such treatment? Yet before I could so much as pip in protest, one of the tightrope walkers appeared from behind a stack of crates. Is that the water, boy? she snapped. You keep that filthy creature away from me, disgusting little toad. On your feet, boy, commanded the strong man. You heard the lady. You make yourself scarce, or I'll pop you like a boil. The scene appalled me, but nothing surprised me more than what happened next. The boy, who looked like he could barely find his feet, suddenly rolled head over heels and rose to a standing position. He raised his arms wide, then bowed low, one elbow bent across his chest, the other extended. When he rose again, I saw something I shall never forget. His smile, 
It was the wickedest and most cunning smile I had ever seen and have ever seen since. That smile was like a symphony of secret feelings, textured and nuanced in unspeakable ways. The strong man was daunting to be sure, but that smile had a thousand times more power. Then the boy turned on his heel and trotted away. It was only then that I saw the boy was barefoot, his skin so browned and tough that I had mistaken his naked feet for shoes. I had never seen that boy before, but now I saw him everywhere, and each encounter was more distressing than the last. The boy was given only the most demeaning tasks, such as shoveling manure from the horse's stalls, or peeling potatoes for the kitchen, or collecting soiled laundry in a wheelbarrow twice his size. And in every place, someone showered him with insults. They screamed at him, called him names, raised their hands as if to strike him. They called him a good-for-nothing louse, a useless worm, a crook, a cad, a yellow dog, a skunk, a scoundrel, and always in the shrill tone of absolute rage. Cooks screamed at him and pelted him with rotten cabbage. The clowns, looking sickly and sad without their makeup, kicked at him and ordered him to scram. And every time they lashed at him, the boy dodged their blows or bowed politely, or transformed a fall into a pirouette, all with the grace of an agile cat. I had never seen such humility. He absorbed their hatred the way his mop soaked up murky water. At first, I thought his uncanny smile was a shield against their tyranny. I wondered if he was a simpleton, and thus too shallow of mind to understand their cruelty. But one look at his smile dispelled that line of thinking. His smile was intelligent. He knew something. You've been listening to The Carnival of Fire, Episode 2, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. All music and sound effects, courtesy of and licensed by audioblocks.com. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. <laughs>